When I first started preaching, one of the very first verses I learned was in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 27. And that verse says this, it has been appointed to men to die once and after this, the judgment. Now think about what that verse is saying. You and I have an appointment with death. We don't know when it is, but God knows. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 139 in verse 16 that before we were ever born, God numbered out how many days that we would live, and God wrote that number in a book. So on God's calendar, there is a day when you will die, and there's a day when I will die. And not only that, on God's calendar, there is a date when we will stand before Him in judgment. Now, we know that those of us who are saved, the judgment that we will stand before God at is the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment of sin. It's a judgment instead on how we have lived our lives. And if we have been faithful and served God, and if our motives have been right, God will reward us for a life of faithful service to Him. If we've not had uh, the right motives, and if we've not served Him, then we'll lose those rewards. But it will not be a judgment for sins because our sins were judged when Jesus Christ died on that cross. He took our judgment and He took our punishment. But for those who have never been saved, the judgment that is in their future is known as the great white throne judgment. We talked about that last Sunday morning. It is the judgment of the unsaved. That is, there is coming a day when those who have never been saved will stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. As we saw last week, it is Jesus himself who is holding this court. He told us in John chapter 5 and verse 22 that the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. So if you think about it, it makes sense. Those who have rejected Christ will one day stand before Christ and they'll have to give an account for their lives. And so we're talking and thinking again this morning about the great white throne judgment. Now, one of the things I said last week, and I think it'd be a good thing to remind us of today, is that at this judgment, there's a judge, but there's no jury. There are defendants, but they have no defense. There's a verdict that will be handed down, but there's no appeal. And there's a sentence but the sentence has no end. Now, if you remember last Sunday morning, I gave the five different categories of unsaved people that will be standing at the great white throne judgment. And I quoted Adrian Rogers, who had divided all unsaved people into one of these five categories. And he said, at the great white throne judgment, that is the final judgment, there will first of all be out-and-out sinners, that is, people who have mocked God, denied God, lived as though there were no God, they'll be there. But not only them, self-righteous people will be at this judgment. That is, people who thought they were so good that they never needed to be forgiven and they never needed to be saved because they would just get to heaven on their own merits. Procrastinators will also be at the final judgment. These are those who knew they needed to be saved. They intended to be saved, but they put it off, and now it will be too late. Unsaved church members will be at the final judgment. These are people who have trusted in and relied upon the fact that they were a member of some church, the fact that they have been baptized, and yet that'll do them absolutely no good at the final judgment. And then there will be those who have never heard the gospel and didn't know about Jesus, and they did not respond to the light that they had from God, to the general revelation that is available to all of us in nature. They rejected that, 
and they never got the gospel. And since they didn't respond to the light they had, they did not get more light. And one day they too will stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, if you would open them please to Revelation chapter 20. This judgment is so important that we're spending two Sunday mornings thinking about it. Again, the great white throne judgment. Now, Let's pick up reading in verse number 11. Now, remember, the Apostle John is having a vision of future events. And at this point in his vision, he is seeing this particular judgment. And notice what he says beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him, that is Jesus, who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, that is the spiritually dead, small and great, the little shots and the big shots, the knowns and the unknowns, the famous and those who nobody's ever heard of. They're all there together standing before God and books were open. Now, what are these books that will be opened at the great white throne judgment? Well, let's read on. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works. Now, it's talking about death giving up the dead in them, Hades giving. What is this? Well, remember, when an unbeliever dies, that person goes to Hades. They don't go to hell. They go to Hades, but their body is buried. The grave has the body, but Hades has the soul. But just before the great white throne judgment, their bodies will come up uh, out of the graves, their souls will come up out of Hades, and they will be reunited with each other. And so just like Christians will have resurrected bodies, unsaved people will have new bodies that will be suited and fitted for their eternity in hell. And so their souls and their bodies will be reunited, new bodies, and they will be standing before Jesus Christ at this final judgment. It is a horrifying, horrifying thought and a, and a horrifying scene. And here we read that as these books are opened, the unsaved will be judged by the works that their lives have left behind, by the things that they have done in their bodies. So the two questions I want us to ask today are, first of all, what charges will be brought against them? And secondly, what sentence will be handed down? In other words, if books are going to be open, there's something in these books. And notice the books, it's plural. You can imagine when you think about all the unsaved people who have lived through all the ages, it would require many, many books because most of the people living in the world are unsaved. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He's in the Sermon on the Mount describing these two roads, and he talks about the narrow road and the narrow gate, and he said there are few who will ever go down that road, but he said there's another road. It's a wide road, and there's a broad entrance to that, and many people, he said, will go that way, and so those people who have gone the broad way now will be at the final judgment, and books will be open, and these books uh, record the works of these unsaved people. What I want you to see here is they will be judged by their works. Just like Christians at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged by our works and we will be rewarded if we've been found faithful. We will 
forfeit the rewards if we've not been found faithful, and we will have degrees of, there will be degrees of reward in heaven. Well, in hell, it's the same way. There will be degrees of punishment based on the works. Now, the question is, at least for me, as I read this and studied this and started trying to figure this out and understand it more clearly, what works specifically will unsaved people be judged for? And I think what we could do in answer to that question is to divide these works into three categories. So I want to give you today three categories of works that unsaved people will be judged for at the great white throne judgment. And if you would turn back into the book of Matthew, the very beginning of the New Testament, all three of these categories, I have verses in Matthew, so we can kind of be in the, in the same place. But the first category of works that unsaved people will be judged for will be their thoughts, the thoughts that they have had. Now, I can't see your thoughts. You can't see my thoughts. We can't see each other's thoughts, but God knows all of our thoughts. And in our minds, God is only going to judge us for what we do. And He will judge us for what we do, saved and unsaved, but He will also judge us for our thoughts. Now, Matthew 5, look in verse 21. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Well, now that makes sense to us. We know that if a person has killed somebody, they're going to have to be judged for that. But look at verse 22. But I say to you, that is Jesus now is raising the law to a higher standard, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And so Jesus is saying, at my judgment, it's not just what you've done, but it's what you've thought about doing. And if you've had anger in your heart and bad thoughts in your mind towards another person, you're going to be judged for that at the final judgment. Look in verse 27, and he says the same thing here about adultery. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we all know adultery is wrong, but look at verse 28. But I say to you, now here's Jesus raising the standard. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus is saying here, it's not just the act. That's, a, that's wrong. Shouldn't do that. And if you do it, these unsaved people, they're going to be judged for that. But he said, it's not just the act that they'll be judged for. It's the thought. It's in their mind. And they will be judged by the thoughts that they had. Now, remember, those of us who are saved... We've been angry with people. We've had thoughts we shouldn't have had, and yet our sins have been forgiven. God has, has removed those sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the final judgment, we're talking now about unsaved people whose sins are not off the record, whose sins are not blotted out of the book, but whose sins are on the record in the book, and now these people are going to have to be punished and give an account for their sins, and it begins with the thoughts that they have. Let me give another verse just to jot this one down. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, God will judge the secrets of men's hearts. So God judges not just our actions, God judges our secrets and God judges our thoughts. Now, go to Matthew chapter 12 because there's a second category of sins that unsaved people will be judged for. They'll have to give an account a reckoning for at the final judgment, and that will be the words that they have spoken. God is listening to our words, and 
when words are spoken that should not be spoken, God writes those words down in a book. It's an offense. It's a sin against God. Now, those of us who are saved, God has blotted those sins out. But the unsaved, their wrong words are still there. Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, that is careless, thoughtless, unproductive, non-edifying word. It includes profanity. It includes immorality. It includes gossip, slander, just words we've all spoken. And what does it say? That for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Talking here about the final judgment. Jesus is going to say, well, now in this book, I have a record here of all the words that you spoke that you never should have spoke. And so I want to just read these to you, and they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Now, you say, John, those of us who are saved, we've spoken words we shouldn't have spoken. What about us? Will we be judged? We will not be judged in the same sense that these unsaved people will be judged. We will not be judged in the sense of Jesus opening some book and saying, okay, here are all the words you never should have spoken, and I know I have forgiven you of all that, but I'm just bringing it up to remind you nonetheless. No, when God forgives, God forgets, and God's not going to bring up sins that He's already forgiven. At our judgment, at the judgment seat of Christ, for words that we have spoken or thoughts that we have had or things that we have done that we never should have done, what we will experience will be the loss of rewards. In other words, if we've spoken hurtful words, piercing words, careless words, wrong words, at our judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, it will be as though Jesus says to us, in effect, you're not going to get the same rewards you would have gotten, but you're not being punished for these sins, but you're nonetheless not going to be uh, rewarded. Look in verse 37, for by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And so the words of unsaved people will be brought before them, brought against them as evidence to the fact of the unforgiven sins in their lives. And so we have their thoughts, we have their words, and we also have their actions, the things that they have done. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 10 now, or go to Matthew chapter 10, and find verse 26. And when you see Matthew 10, 26, look for the second sentence in that verse. And notice what Jesus said. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And so at the final judgment, sins that have been covered over, sins that have been hidden, will all come to the surface. It will all come to the light. And they will be judged by those sins. Now, turn back, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter number 28, because this is an interesting verse, and this is a verse I think of from time to time, but in Proverbs chapter 28, down in verse 13, let me give you just a moment to find that, because this is one of those classic verses that you would want to have marked and underlined in your Bible, if indeed you are a Bible underlined, and I hope you are. Proverbs 28, 13, notice what it says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so there's a principle in the Bible that says, if you cover your sins, one day God is going to uncover them. But if you uncover your sins, 
then God will cover them. What we cover, God uncovers, and what we uncover, God covers with His love and mercy and grace and with the blood of Jesus Christ. He covers it with His forgiveness. But it says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. And so with the final judgment, those who have covered their sins, hidden their sins, minimized, trivialized their sins, who have said, compared to everybody else's sins, my sins are not that bad, Jesus is going to say, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to uncover your sins, and I'm going to share with you from these books every thought that you've had that was not right, every word that you've spoken that you never should have spoken, and everything that you've ever done that you never should have done. That's why I'm saying it's a horrifying sense. That's why I said at the beginning, there are defendants, but there's no defense. There's a judge, but there's no jury. There's a verdict, but there is no appeal because they will be guilty as charged, and they will know that they're guilty, and they will know that they never went to God. They never sought His forgiveness, and they will know. Jesus will be explaining to them why they're going to hell. In other words, it is as though Jesus is saying to these unsaved people, before you go to hell, I want to just explain to you why you're going to hell. I don't want there to be any confusion in your mind. You're going to hell because of thoughts you've had, words you've spoken, deeds you've done that were unforgiven. You never confessed them. You never repented of them. You never asked my forgiveness. You never uncovered those sins so that I could cover them. Instead, you covered them over. And at the final judgment, whatever has been covered will be uncovered. Nothing will be hidden. Nothing will be uncovered. Everything at this judgment will come to the light. Now, as we think about saved people and unsaved people, the fact is saved people and unsaved people commit many of the same sins. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you've never received Jesus Christ, I don't want you to sit there with the idea that you're worse than those of us who have been saved. Maybe you're sitting by a believer, you're sitting by a Christian, and you've not yet made that decision. Listen, there's a chance that the person sitting next to you today has committed more sins than you have. Turn to them and say, I always thought that was the case, that you had maybe done more. Well, no, don't say that. That'll be a word that'll be held against you at the final judgment. But just because a person is a Christian, that doesn't mean that they have sinned less than the person who's not a Christian. doesn't mean that at all. Because remember, at the final judgment, some of the unsaved people are going to be very self-righteous. They'll have lived good, moral, decent lives. And yet their thoughts, and their, but they're still, they've sinned. They, listen, you don't go to heaven based on the fact that you've sinned less, you go to heaven based on the fact that your sins have been forgiven. And you don't go to hell because you've sinned more. You go to hell because your sins, however many or however few, are unforgiven. And so it's not a matter of who has sinned most or who has done what. It's a matter of have we been forgiven for whatever it is that we have done. And it's interesting to me, and I was thinking about this yesterday, As I think about the people in Scripture whom God greatly used, every one of them without exception had a strong awareness of their own sinfulness. Think about Isaiah. 
in his book, Isaiah chapter 6. Here's Isaiah, and he's having this vision of God, and he's seeing God in all of his holiness. And what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And in the presence of God, how does Isaiah describe himself? He says, I'm undone. I'm a, I have unclean lips. What did he mean? He said, I have unclean. It means Isaiah was saying, I have spoken things. I have said things that I never should have said. And in the presence of holy God, it all comes back to me. And I'm convicted of my sin. And what did God do upon that confession? God sent an angel, and that angel uh, had dipped a coal of fire in the altar of heaven, symbolizing the blood of Jesus Christ. And he touched Isaiah's mouth with that, and his sin was expunged, and his sin was forgiven, and his sin was removed. But the point is, in the presence of holiness... Isaiah didn't say, well, I'm better than Jeremiah or I'm better than this person over here. No, he said, woe is me for I am undone. On one occasion, we read about a tax collector. He went to the temple to pray. And there were two men praying, a, a, a self-righteous person and a tax collector. The self-righteous person said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners here. They commit adultery. They have bad thoughts. They do things they ought not to do. And I, God, I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. Oh, God, I thank you that I fast twice a week. Thank you that I do all these good things. His prayer had no brokenness, no repentance, no confession of sin. Then the tax collector, it was his time to pray. And the Bible says, Jesus said in this story in Luke 18, he said he could not even look up to God, but he bowed his head and he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He saw his own sin in the light of God's holiness. I think about Simon Peter. He was in the inner circle of Jesus with James and John. On one occasion, Simon Peter, so convicted of Christ's holiness and his own sinfulness, he said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. How about Paul, the most effective Christian who's ever lived, the most influential Christian in the history of the world? He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He may have written 14 if he wrote Hebrews. I think we could say that Paul was the greatest Christian of all time. But if Paul were here today and I said, the Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian of all time, Paul would stand up and say, John, did you never read the little book that I wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy? Did you never read that first chapter? First cha did you never read verse 15 where I said these words, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul didn't think of himself as the greatest sinner who ever lived. He thought of himself as the chief sinner. And I've always thought, had I lived when Paul lived, that verse would read like this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the assistant chief because John is the chief sinner. I feel that way. About if Paul called himself the chief sinner, what in the world are we? We're sinners in the presence of holy God. But what have we done with our sins? We've uncovered those sins. We've confessed those sins. We've repented of those sins. And God in Christ has forgiven those sins and covered them over in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so those are the charges that will be brought against these unsaved people. Their thoughts their words, and their actions. Now, you still with me? Say amen. What is the sentence that will be handed down? I mean, that's, those are the charges. They're undoubtedly guilty. They don't even deny their own guilt. So what is the sentence that will be handed down? Well, the sentence is that they will be cast into the lake of fire. Look in verse 14, back in Revelation chapter 20. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death. Hell, this is an interesting side note. Hell in the Bible is described as the second death. You say, well, what's the first death? Well, the first death is physical death. The first death is physical. The second death is spiritual. Someone has said it well, and they say it this way. If you have only been born once, you will die twice. You will die physically, and you will die spiritually. But if you've been born twice, if you've been born physically and born spiritually, if you've been born again, then you will only die once. You'll only know physical death. You'll never know the second death. Verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, as we saw a few weeks ago in our study of hell, is simply another name for hell. Gehenna in the Old Testament, the lake of fire is the expression used here. Gehenna is translated in our English Bibles with the word hell. So that's where they will be cast. I want to make two statements here about the unsaved people at this moment. Number one, their works will determine their punishment in hell. Their works will determine their punishment in hell. Statement number two, their lostness will determine their place in hell. In other words, they won't go to hell just because they've done these things, thought these things, or said these things, because those of us who are saved have thought, done, and said some of the same things. Again, they will go to hell because those things were unforgiven, and that is what will make them lost. Now, you know the word lost. If we would have, if, let me say it this way, if this were the 1920s, or the 1930s, or 40s, or 50s, and we were going to church every Sunday, like hopefully we would had we lived back then. When we went to church in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, or 50s, that word lost would have been a word that we would have heard regularly. But it's interesting. In churches today, you don't hear that word spoken of very much, lost. And yet, the word lost is a Bible word. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, I have come, he referred to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, lost is one of the words in the Bible that describes an unsaved person. And I think it's a very descriptive word because when you hear the word lost, and and we've all been lost, uh, driving driving on a vacation, we're going somewhere, we don't know how to get there, and even if we've got GPS and we took a wrong turn and, and we say, man, I'm lost. When a person is lost, what are they? They're disoriented. They're confused. Many times when we're lost, we're by ourselves, right? That's why we're lost, because we don't have anybody to try to help us. See, that word describes unsaved people. They're lost. They're disoriented. They're confused. They're alone. They're away from safety. When you're lost on a trip, don't you feel like you're you're away from safety? I don't don't know where I am. I don't have my bearings. Is is this a good part of town or a bad part? Am I safe here? So when we're lost, we we have all of those things. Years ago, I had gone to visit the medical center. I used to visit hospitals every Monday. For years I did that, and I was in the medical center one Monday and visiting some people in the hospital, and it was in the evening time. And so when I got in my pickup truck to drive back to Pasadena, it was nighttime. And I said to myself, I have driven this road to and from the medical center so many times, I'm bored with it. I want to take a different route. Well, that was my first mistake because Uh, I took a route that ended me up in a pretty, at least in my estimation, a pretty rough and even dangerous part of town. Uh, 
And so I'm driving along there trying to figure this whole thing out, and I didn't know what to do. And so I called my friend, who at that time was Houston police officer, and I told him my plight. And I said, listen, I am here in a part of town I've never been in, and I've, I, I, don't know how to get, I don't know how to get back to the interstate. Or get to, I said, tell me what to do. And he said, well, what street are you on, and what is the cross street? He's very familiar with this part of town. So I told him the street I was on, and I told him the cross street. And here's what he said to me. He said, well, John, you're right. You're in a very rough part of town. Now, that's kind of scary to hear that from a police officer. And he said, but just keep driving, and, and maybe it'll get better. So I got to the next red light, and I told him where I was. He said, well, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. I said, what should I do? And he, this is the truth. He said, lock your doors. <laughs> well, I was in the pickup truck, single cab, and so I only had two doors. Well, they were both locked, and I drove on a little bit more. And I told him the next red light, I told him the street I was at, and uh, I said, what should I do now? He said, what, John, he said, your doors are locked, right? I said, right. I said, what should I do now? He said, well, it's getting worse. Now what you need to do is put your hand on your gun. That's what he said to me. And I said, well, I don't have a gun in this truck. He said, you don't have a gun in this truck? I said, I don't. And I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, if you don't have a gun in this truck, there's only one thing left to do, pray. You need to pray. And so I prayed, and I said, God, help me. Give me, he said, John, there's something else you need to do in addition to praying, actually. I said, what do I need to do? He said, you need to turn around and go the other way. And so I prayed, and I turned around, and finally, after a few minutes, I saw a sign that said, Interstate 45, this way. And I thought, thank God, I'm going to live to see another day. But I was thinking about that story last week. There I was in a part of Houston I had never been in by myself, before the days of GPS, all I had was a cell phone and my police officer friend and God. And what did I do? I called him and what did he tell me to do? He said, John, there are really two steps you need to take. Number one, pray. Number two, turn around. Think about this. The lost people at the great white throne judgment, for them it will be too late to pray and it will be too late to turn around. And so there they'll be before God. And Jesus is just reading to them all the things they've thought, all the things they've said, all the things they've done. And those sins are not forgiven. And so now they're having, see, their sins are on them. This is one of the, one, this is the greatest thing about being saved. Our sins were punished on the body of Jesus Christ when he died on that cross. Unsaved people, their sins are on them. And they have to take the punishment for their own sins. And again, I want to say this again. At the great white throne, it will be too late to pray, and it will be too late to turn around. Let me give you a scripture verse. Isaiah chapter 55 in verse 6. Listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Notice it doesn't just say, seek the Lord, call upon him. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What is the implication? The implication is there's coming a day when people will seek the Lord, but he won't be able to be found, at least not in a forgiving sense. There will be a day when people will call out to God, but he won't be near, at least not salvifically, he won't be near in a saving sense. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now look again at verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life 
was cast into the lake of fire. I want to come back in a few weeks and preach an entire sermon on the book of life. Or in another place, it's called the book of life of the Lamb. We call it the Lamb's book of life. Talk about whose names are in there. When were our names written down? I think it would be an interesting sermon on the Lamb's book of life. But today, I don't think we need a whole sermon to understand this. The Lamb's book of life is a book that records the names of everyone who's ever been saved. And if your name is in that book, you go to heaven. And if your name is not in that book, you go to the lake of fire. Again, look at the verse again. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so the question is, is your name in the book? Now, there's an interesting verse in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that says this, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, it is God's will for everyone's name to be in the book of life. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, even though that's God's will, God has given us a free will, and so Whether or not our name is in that book is in part determined on whether or not we repent of our sins and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. But what I want to make clear is God wants everybody to be saved. If you believe that, say amen. It is not God's will that anybody go to hell. I think sometimes we have the idea with the great white throne judgment, Jesus is going to judge all these people for all these things, and he's going to joyfully send them to hell. No, he's not. That is not the heart of God. God God doesn't want them to go to hell. They'll have to go to hell because their sins must be punished. God is holy and God is just. But when they go to hell, the heart of God will be broken because that was never his intention for them. He wanted everybody to be saved. Years ago, I read something that C.S. Lewis, the great Christian thinker, had said, and if you think about this, um, well, if you think about it, it kind of puts this whole thing in perspective, and it helps us to see even the great white throne judgment more clearly. C.S. Lewis said, in the world, there are two categories of people. Category one, those who are like Jesus. Now, none of us is enough like Jesus, but his point is still a good point. Lewis said there are many people, or at least there are some people in the world who are like Jesus, and their prayer is to God as they go through life, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, sometime in life we come to a crossroads and we say, I really want to go this way, but I think God is telling me to go that way, and so am I going to do what I want to do or am I going to do what God wants me to do? And at the crossroads of life, those of us who have truly been saved, at least more often than not, will say to God, God, not my will, but yours be done. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. C.S. Lewis said there's a second category of people, and these are those who are not, they're not like Jesus, they're like the devil. And their attitude is towards God, God, not your will, but mine be done. In other words, God, you're wanting me to go this way, but I'm wanting to go this way, and so I'm going to go the way I want to go. I know you're telling me to go here, but I'm going here. Not my will, but yours be done, category one. Category two, not your will but mine be done. C.S. Lewis said, 
at the final judgment, a broken-hearted God will say to those in category two, now listen to this language, as they drop into hell, not my will, but yours be done. I was not willing that any should perish. I wanted you to all get saved, but you didn't want to do that. A broken-hearted God will say to them, not my will, but yours be done. What will God be saying? He will, say, he will be saying, I gave you time. I gave you opportunities. I gave you chances. And yet, you wanted to live your life apart from me. And so what will Jesus, the ultimate gentleman, be saying to those who are unsaved as they drop into hell? What will he be saying? I believe with tears in his eyes he will be saying, I'm going to let you have what you always wanted. And that is an existence without my presence. Now friend, I want to ask you this morning. Do you know for sure that your name is in the Lamb's book of life? You know, I've been trying to figure out, I said this in the first service, I'll say it here and then we'll stop. I've been trying to figure out what in the world is going on with this pandemic. Just like I'm sure you have and, and, and we all have. And when something like this happens, I always say to God, God, what are you up to? God, what are you saying? Why have you allowed this? I'm trying to figure out, even in our own church, what's happening. We're having, now the crowd... Crowds are getting better. Last week we had over a thousand, and looks like today when they add it all up, it'll probably be more than that as well. But but still, we're having about a third of the crowds that we normally have, and yet we're seeing about three times the number of people get saved that normally get saved. How could you have a third of the crowd and three times the people? Dad mentioned it earlier in the welcome last week. To the glory of God, 17 people got saved. 17 people got saved. In the first service today, in the first service today, I mean at the 9 o'clock service, five people got saved in the first service this morning. In the last week, 22, it may have been more than that. I'm talking about in the room who stood up. 22 people have been saved or either they've made sure that they're saved. How could you have a third of the crowd and three times a decision? And that's what I'm saying. What is God up to? Well, I'll tell you what I think God's up to. God is up to causing people to think about that which matters in life. And I'll tell you that which matters in life is that which is eternal. And that which will last forever. Do you think at the, at the judgment, either the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne, that it will matter how much money you had, how popular you were, how successful you were, how, even how long you lived? No. The only thing will matter is whether or not you're saved. And so today, in this service, I'm just asking a simple question. Do you know for sure that your name is in the book of life. And if you would say, you know what, John? Honest answer to that question is, no, I don't. I hope it is. I think it might be, but I don't know for sure that it is. I'm going to give you an opportunity today to make 100% sure that Jesus Christ is living in your heart. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can pray this prayer silently in your heart to God. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And that word whoever includes you, whoever you are, whether it's your first time to come to a church to, to a church service here at First Baptist. Maybe your first time to ever go to a church service anywhere. Or maybe you've been here many times before. But with our heads bowed right now and our eyes closed, if you want to know for sure that Jesus Christ is living in your heart, would you pray this prayer? Just say, Dear Jesus, I have thought things, I have said things, and I have done things that are wrong and I confess that to you today I uncover it I ask you to forgive me I ask you to cleanse me I ask you to save me Lord I plead guilty is charged to everything I've done wrong But Lord, today, I want to settle my case in advance, out of court. And so right now, I ask you to save me. Now, friend, if you prayed that, say this to Jesus. Say, Lord, not only do I ask you to save me, but I trust you to do it. I trust you. I don't trust the church. I don't trust my good intentions to do better in the future. I don't even trust this prayer. I'm not trusting this experience. I'm not clinging to this. I'm trusting you, Jesus. You, you, you. I'm trusting you with all of my heart. 